Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation chapter 1 as we get into God's Word together uh, this morning. And let me just say what a thrill it is to be able to hear about another church plant, another Bible translated. Um, it's, you know, yeah, it's praise the Lord. It's awesome. It's a great thing. And, <clears throat> yeah. Um, you know, I love to hear stories about how people, uh, how, how you have come to faith. Um, I don't know if you remember what happened on the morning of January 13th. It was a Saturday, 2018. I know there, are, there were some in the first service who experienced this, and I know there are some in this service as well. But um, there was a ballistic missile alert that was accidentally issued via the emergency alert system and wireless emergency alert system over television and radio and cell phones in the United States of Hawaii. And they were told that there was an incoming ballistic missile. And as far as they knew, they just had a very short time to live. Um, how would you respond? I know how the people responded who were here in the service, and I know how the people responded in the, in the first service. Uh, one gal who was actually here with crew a couple of years ago um, came to faith when she saw the way her sister responded because she said, man, I thought I was a Christian, but I definitely did not have the kind of peace. Uh, and that, she said that, described it as a pivotal moment in her life when uh, she came to faith in Christ. And it became as real to her, and that was her prayer. Lord, make my faith as real to me as my sister's faith is in you. Uh, her name was Emily. Uh, this is the hope that we have in Christ. We're talking about uh, starting a new series on the first four chapters of the book of Revelation and talking this morning about the first eight verses and God speaking to us from heaven. Uh, and and the, the title of this series is Jesus' Words to the Church because he's writing to the seven churches of Revelation and we'll be looking at what he says to each of them. Um, but this is what John is saying to the people that he's writing to that they were under persecution and he wanted them to have hope knowing that if, if, if they died, they would go to heaven. If Jesus came back, they had the promise that he would come back and make all things right. And this is the hope we have in Christ. Uh, Emily's sister and now Emily live lives exalting God and living lives of, of worship to him. You know, we want our time on Sunday mornings to be a, a time, it's, a, it's always a great time of corporate worship together. But it's, it's not an end in itself. It's to motivate and encourage and inspire you to live lives of worship in between Sundays. Uh, the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So what's the gain? Uh, to cherish Christ as gain means to be completely at peace with God. And all that he is, is our hope. Our hope is in Jesus. So do you consider Jesus as giving you more than you could ever get from anything in the world? Is he your all in all? 
G. Campbell Morgan was a pastor in London a number of years ago, and he wrote this, I worship in the presence of God as I recognize that in him I find everything that my life demands. And I find that in myself, I am incomplete everywhere. A sense of my need and God's resource produces the act and the attitude of worship. Before John addresses the churches, he wants us to know, he wants them to know that this message is not from him. Uh, He wants them to know who it's from. This is the revelation, singular, not revelations. It's the revelation to Jesus, uh, from Jesus to John. And the message of of, of revelation in one sentence is that God rules history and will bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. No matter how bad it gets here and things might be looking a little bleak, uh, God gives us the hope of ultimate victory. That's our hope. There was a third century man that was anticipating his death and he had come in contact with Christians and he was writing his last words to a friend and this is what he wrote. It's a bad world, an incredibly bad world, but I have discovered in the midst of it a quiet and holy people these Christians who have learned a great secret. They have found a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of our sinful life. Sounds like it could have been Emily talking about her sister having that joy. Well, we need to set this book in the context in which it was written. So over 60 years had gone by since the day a young, wide-eyed fisherman named John literally left his nets behind, dropped his nets to follow Jesus. Uh, John was one of the inner circle with Jesus, along with James and and Peter. Uh, They had a front row seat to Jesus raising a, a little girl from the dead. Uh, They saw Jesus transformed on the Mount of Transfiguration. They had access to special times with Jesus. That they witnessed, John witnessed the crucifixion. And it was at the crucifixion that Jesus gave him the unique responsibility of caring for his mother, Mary. John and Peter were also the first ones to the tomb. Uh, And and John writes in John chapter 20 that he was the first to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. So now there's this madman, Domitian, who had become the emperor of Rome and who believed that he was God incarnate. And he demanded to be addressed as my Lord and God. And anyone who didn't would possibly lose their job, their home, their livelihood, and and uh, likely their lives if they didn't bow down to him. And so the question of the day, and, and John has this in mind when he's writing the book of Revelation, is were Christians wasting their time following a crucified Jew rather than one who seemed obviously to be the Lord of the world? And among other things, Revelation is written to say no to that question. John had been living and teaching near Ephesus 
in modern day Turkey and had been exiled for his faith by the emperor to the island of Patmos on the Aegean Sea. And as he was worshiping the Lord, Jesus commissioned him. Look at verse 11. We're not going to read that far, but the Lord commissioned him to write a book, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. There are 404 verses. You have this on your outline in in Revelation. And in Revelation, there are 285 Old Testament quotations by far more than any other book. If you add in the allusions, it's over 500. The next book is Hebrews with 85 Old Testament quotations. When God speaks with power, when God speaks with promise, uh, he, does, he, does, uh, he, he does this, and so how are we to respond when he speaks to us? We respond with worship. We respond with obedience. And again, living lives of worship. Um, Revelation addresses the future, but even more than that, Revelation, and this is on your outline, is a book that teaches us to worship. If you miss this, you miss the main point of the book. Our focus is on Jesus. Greg Beale wrote a book called We Become What We Worship, and that's true. Let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, Charles Darwin uh, wrote in his autobiography, my chief enjoyment in life has been scientific work. That is all that makes my life endurable. I used to find pleasure in poetry, but I find it dull now. I am a withered leaf for every subject except science. So compare Darwin to another young man, a brilliant man named Jonathan Edwards, who wrote at age 19, my one goal is to cast my soul daily on the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust him completely and consecrate myself to him wholly. Worship has brought to my soul an inexpressible purity, brightness, and peacefulness. It has made my soul to be like a garden. So you have these two men, one describing himself as a withered leaf and the other as a garden. And the object of our devotion, is the object of anyone's devotion is what shapes us to become who we are. The object of their devotion shaped them to become who they were. So we ask, I'm, I'm going to ask you a question. What are you worshiping? Who are you worshiping? In your heart of hearts, who do you worship? We all worship something. We all worship. God wants our focus to be on him, on Jesus. We approach these first four chapters as we would approach any section of scripture. With humility, with careful reading, and with practical application. And so at the top of your outline, it says this, before John gives us a glimpse into the future, he reveals the source of his information, our omniscient and sovereign God, through King Jesus, the exalted head of the church. These first eight verses introduce the rest of the book. Nothing should distract us from the heart of this book, worshiping Jesus as Savior and Lord. 
As we worship him, we allow his words to pierce our hearts in order to strengthen and correct us. The one who reads and hears and obeys God's word concerning who Jesus is and what he does will be blessed. A man on my ordination committee, his name was Joseph Bailey, wrote a book called How Silently, How Silently, about Jesus showing up in a modern day church and what the response was of the people. So what would happen if Jesus showed up here and he examined your heart and your relationship with him? If he examined every one of your interpersonal relationships, would he be proud of you and encourage you to keep doing what you're doing? Or would he look at you from having had a hung head with tears in his eyes and be grieved? He knows every secret. He knows every grudge. He knows every embarrassing mistake. He knows every less than pure motive. That's what happens in these first chapters of Revelation and Jesus' analysis of the seven churches. His words to the churches range from absolutely praiseworthy to tragic. And Jesus doesn't hold back. He calls all of us to examine our lives and examine our ministries and see if they measure up to his standards of faith and hope and love. This is what the Apostle Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 13. He says this, for now, for right now, until, the, until that completeness, until Jesus returns, or you're with him, we have three things to do to lead us toward that consummation. Trust steadily in God, hope unswervingly, love extravagantly. And the best of the three is love. So let's read our passage together, Revelation chapter one, beginning at verse one. This is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is his report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says, for the time is near. This letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come from the sevenfold spirit before his throne and from Jesus Christ. He is the faithful witness to these things, the first to rise from the dead and the ruler of all the kings of the world. All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. He has made us a kingdom of priests for God, his Father. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. 
Look, he comes with the clouds of heaven and everyone will see him, even those who pierced him and all the nations of the world will mourn for him. Yes, amen. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, the almighty one. Amen. This is God's word to us. So the first thing we see in these verses, number one on your outline, is the blessing of being a true disciple. Uh, The title, A Revelation from Jesus Christ, means that everything in this book points ultimately to Jesus as the central figure and to his second coming as judge and king. It says at the end of the sentence in in verse one that these events must soon take place. So what does soon take place mean? Uh, We we have the same thing in Hebrews one. Says that these are the last days. James chapter five says that the judge stands at the door. And in 1 John two, it confirms that this is the last hour. Uh, So about 2,000 years have passed since all these words were written. And so the idea here is that, and, and this is what we need to keep in mind, this is to encourage you that the next thing on God's agenda to fulfill God's plan is, is Christ's second coming. No matter how much time there is in between, the next thing on God's agenda is for Jesus to return. I love the way one commentator uh, expresses it. Alan Johnson says, in eschatology, this is on your outline, in apocalyptic literature, the future is always viewed as imminent. The church in every age has always lived with the expectancy of the consummation of all things in its own day. So we should be living with that expectation. Imminent, he says, describes an event that is possible any day and impossible, no day. It's never impossible for Christ to return. He can return whenever he wants. The revelation was given to John, and so John is the man chosen by Jesus to receive the revelation. And I think that's important because, and this is on your outline, before God can choose to use you, you have to be available. When I think of availability, I think of Samuel, the prophet. In uh, 1 Samuel, it says, Then the Lord called Samuel, and Samuel answered, Here I am. Or like Isaiah, Here I am, send me. You willing to pray that? Here I am, Lord. Send me wherever you want me to go. I, I release all my plans. I put them in your hands. There are many plans in a man's mind, but it is your purpose that I want to stand for me. Maybe there's so much noise in your life that you couldn't hear God if he wanted to speak to you? Do you have a time that's set aside that is just for you and God? A a personal devotional time? A quiet time? Maybe your schedule is so full that if you did hear him, you're too busy to do whatever he asked you to do. Are you too busy to be available for God? 
You know, when we come to the word, we should pray what David prayed. In Psalm 119, he said, Lord, open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things from your word. And so we behold those wonderful things, but then we, we act, we hear them, we, we read them, but then we, we must act on them. If, if, if God gives you a nudge of somebody to call or, or some person comes to your mind while you're throughout the day, but especially while you're talking with the Lord, God wants you to pray for them, at least pray for them. Why not text them or call them and tell them that you're praying for them or pray with them? Don't ignore the prompts that God gives you. Follow those prompts. We have to be available, and Jesus chooses us to carry the message of the good news. Think about that. This is what he says. Paul the Apostle writes in 2 Corinthians 5. All of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through, through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. Who are the ministers of reconciliation? You are. And just look at John. He's in a position to receive the word and, and record it. And at the end of verse one, it says that God sent an angel to present this revelation to the servant John. Angels are mentioned 67 times in Revelation, which accounts for about one quarter of the usage of that, of references to angels in the Bible. And through this angel, the Lord made his message known to John, who at the time was probably in his 90s. You think you're too old to be used by God? You think you're on the shelf for one reason or another? You are not. God used John to do something so significant in the history of redemption as to write the gospel of, 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 of the gospels and then the, the letters to, of John, but then also the book of Revelation in his 90s. And in verse two, John says he faithfully reported everything he saw. And what did John see? Well, first he saw the word of God, that God cares so much for us that he sent his son to die for us. Uh, think of, of, of John 1, verses 1 and 14, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. If you have never memorized those verses, John 1, verses 1 and 14, you should hide those in your heart. They are important for us as believers and, and for what Jesus came to do. And then look at verses two and three. His servant John, who faithfully reported everything he saw, this is his report of the word of God, and it was the testimony of Jesus Christ. And in verse three, God blesses the one who reads the words of the prophecy to the, to the church, and he blesses all who listen to the message and obey what it says, for the time is near. What does it mean to be blessed? We, we use that, we throw that term around all the time. Well, I'm blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? Well, here's what it means from the, a, a biblical point of view. I love the way one commentator put it. It's on your outline. The word blessed does not express superficial sentiment, but instead, listen to this, the rugged and tested assurance that it is a good thing to be walking in the pathway of God's will. That's what it means to be blessed. We can have confidence that God's word will accomplish its, his purpose, its purpose in our lives. 
We have this great promise in Isaiah 55. It says this, my word which goes forth from my mouth will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So are you reading the word of God? And more important than that, are you obeying the word of God that you read? That's how we express our love to Jesus. That's the epitome of deep worship, if you will, is being obedient to what he asks us to do. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. Jesus said also in Luke chapter six, why do you call me Lord? Lord, and not do what I say. We've got to be obedient as we read his word. And then the second thing, the greeting is from the triune God, uh, verses four to six. And so the first thing in verse four uh, is that the same greeting that Paul uses 13 times, grace and peace. It's a common greeting. But man, it is, it is pregnant with meaning. Uh, and the grace is the first thing that, that is there. You've, you could sum up Christianity. If you had to sum it up in one word, it would have to be the word grace. Because we, we don't deserve salvation. It's, it's God's grace. We don't deserve anything we have. It is the grace of God that we have what we have. And peace for Paul and John was really the Greek translation of shalom. One commentator described shalom, and I love this, as an everything as it should be peace. I love that. What was lost at the fall was our shalom. We lost our peace with God. What, what was, and what would be returned to us is shalom. When, when he returns, everything will be made right. It will be a return to shalom, the way it was in the garden. Peace with God is like Romans 5.1, that therefore since we have been made right in God's sight, we have peace with God because of what Jesus our Lord has done for us. And so think of grace and peace like twin sisters. And grace is just a little bit older. Because you've gotta have grace. You can't have grace without, uh, you can't have peace without grace. Grace was the firstborn. And where grace is stunted, Peace shrivels. You want to have the peace of God? Grow in grace. Grace comes first because peace with God and the peace of God flow out from what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9 as the surpassing grace of God. And then verse 4 says that this all comes from the one who is and always was and who is still to come. That's God who is eternal and unchangeable. And at verse four, the greeting is from God the Father. Generally, you would hear God the Son next, but you have God the Spirit. And so it says, it it calls the Holy Spirit the seven spirits. Why seven spirits? Because the number seven means completeness. It means fullness. It means perfection. And so what he's saying is that this is the Holy Spirit in all of its perfection, in all of his perfection, in all of who he is, in all of his fullness. Revelation is about the future, but it is even more about Jesus, uh, who is, and this is on your outline, he is the warrior lamb. He is the warrior lamb. Where would you ever hear those two words together? Except right here, warrior lamb. 
And it says in Revelation 17, they will go to war against the lamb, but the lamb will defeat them. We serve a warrior lamb. It's unusual, but this is the greeting from the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God, God the Spirit, and then God the Son is last in order to emphasize who Jesus is. And we have here five truths concerning who Jesus is and what he does. So the first one is faithful witness. You've got it on your outline. Because by the life Jesus lived, by the words Jesus said, by the works that he did, he showed us the character of God. Jesus even said in John chapter 14, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And then second, Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. This is literally the firstborn child. And it's a concept that's super important in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you had the, the, the firstborn child was the one who inherited his father's place uh, as the head of the family. He received the father's blessing and received a double portion of the inheritance. That was the firstborn. That's Jesus. And it says in Revelation 1, verse 18, you look at verse 18, Jesus says, I am the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the key to death in Hades. And third, Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And this is a recurring theme in, in Revelation, and talk about countercultural. This, is the, this title flies directly in the face of the Roman imperial cult and its claims to have a divine Caesar. And then the fourth one is the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. You know, there's a Swiss author, Karl Barth, German, uh, German, Swiss-German man, who's giving lectures at Yale University. He wrote what's called the Church Dogmatics. Everything the church believes, he sums up in 14 volumes. It takes up this much room on a shelf. It's ridiculously long. And he had a question answer time at the end of his lectures and a student stood up and asked him and said, uh, Dr. Bart, what would you say that is the most profound truth you've learned as you've written all of what the church believes? And he said, I can tell you in his thick Swiss German accent, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Man, so simple. So simple, but so profound. And then in verse 6, finally, he makes us a kingdom of priests for his father. In, in 1 Peter 2, he calls us a holy priesthood. We serve and worship and bear witness to the kingdom of our Christ. And John can only conclude, conclude at the end of verse 6 with amen. So be it. This is it. How fitting, because we behold who Jesus is, and we can just agree. Amen. That's who Jesus is. And then finally, we see in verses 7 and 8 that the Lord Jesus will return in triumph. There are all kinds of Old Testament allusions uh, in these last two verses. And uh, first it says in verse 7, Look at the him who comes with the clouds of heaven and everyone will see him, even those who pierced him. And there's references to a lot of Old Testament passages. You've got them on your outline. I hope that you'll spend some time and look, look them up. But everyone will see him. It's not like his first coming when he comes in a manger. This time he comes with authority and deity and sovereignty to judge and be king. 
And we can trust in God's sovereign plan. You know what, the way you could sum up Revelation? God wins. That's all we need. God wins. And we're on the winning team. We're on the winning side. And he will replace any fear in your life with hope. That's what Emily saw in her sister on that day in Hawaii. We can look at this world and we can say, man, this world is falling apart. But even when it spins out of control, we can be confident that God has the final say. And then the last thing it says in verse 7 is that even those who, who pierced him will, will see him. In verse 8, a direct quote from the Lord God, and we read, he is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the one who is and who was and, and who, is, who is coming. There never was a time when God was not, and there will never be a time when he is not. And he is the Almighty. This term is used 10 times in Revelation, or 10 times throughout the New Testament. Nine of them are in Revelation. As Almighty, God is the all-controller. He's the all-ruler. And this means that he controls every circumstance and every event in this universe. You know, nothing in your life takes God by surprise. Nothing. God never goes, oh, oops, what happened? It's not in his vocabulary. A.W. Tozer was correct when he said that what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. As we worship God, keep that in mind. Your personal view of God impacts every single decision you make. That's why we have to live lives of worship. So let me ask you, if you're married, what determines the success of your marriage more than anything else? It's your personal view of God. Is it your view or is it the Bible's view? Is it what God says in his word? What determines how you respond to tragedy? How you respond to good things that happen? How you respond to frustrations or disappointments? Ultimately, how you view God determines everything. It makes all the difference in the world when you're facing the loss of a loved one. Whether you view God as highly involved or uninvolved, whether you view him as in control or out of control. Revelation teaches us that Jesus is the ruler of the king of kings, of the, all the kings of the earth. He is the king of kings. All glory and dominion are his forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you overcome the darkness. Lord, we want to be true worshipers. We want to mean what we sing. We want to be faithful in spending time alone with you so that you can speak to us. We want to follow the prompts that come into our lives from you. Father, if there happens to be anyone here right now who doesn't know you, may they put their trust and their confidence completely in you. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now we're gonna end with these words from the end of of uh, the book of Revelation. He who has said all these things declares, yes, I am coming soon. 
Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.